Hello friends, welcome to Mr. Rewalk here at Mr. Robot Recap Show, brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Devlin. And I'm Erin. So what's new with you? Uh, well, I just went on a little road trip. Yeah, you were going to uh, the comedy show that you were talking about in an earlier episode, right? That's right. And so you might find this interesting. So I talked about how I'm trying to incorporate speech to text-to-speech software. Yeah, that's much more useful. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a written show, and you read it <laughs> off PowerPoint. <laughs> um, and so what I'm struggling with is the way that it works is, and if you've ever listened to... Um, an audiobook through the software, anything like that, you know that it doesn't give human pauses the way we naturally would when we speak. No, you kind of need to like fiddle the punctuation and stuff to make it just right. Well, and that's the thing, so that's what I'm struggling with is basically trying to trick it into certain pauses and timing because in comedy, the timing of your words matters a lot in the pauses you take. I think that the timing is arguably more important than the content in a lot of cases. <laughs> it often is, or the emphasis you put on a particular yeah, like the word. Inflection. Or sometimes you want to mumble a word, or you want to say it really fast, or you want to say it really loud. Or all those tricks of human speech, it doesn't incorporate. So I'm trying to decide between what I feel would be... I mean, a better product for the audience is probably one where I go into Audacity and I clean it all up. But what feels more authentic, more interesting to me, is to just let it do its thing. I think that is a little bit more authentic, but comedy... I, I mean, you're the comedian here, but I think that comedy is often kind of like pre-produced in a lot of ways. Like, a lot of the stories, you kind of are taking something that actually happened, but then adding a bunch of stuff on top of it. Does that make any sense? It does, because the thing about it is you want it to be authentic, but you also are amplifying it for effect. Yeah, exactly. So I think that it can still be authentic if you kind of plant the seed and then edit it and then edit the CD until it's how you want it to sound. Well, because the problem is it doesn't pause long enough for anyone to laugh, so they all hold their breath <laughs> until Maybe you need to done. get like an applause sign or something like that. Or I think maybe I just put in prompts where she'll just say, applause. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> you know... This is like, uh, avoiding spoilers for season two, but this reminds me of um, Alexa, because that comes up a lot later in the series. Exactly. Maybe we'll do a bonus episode where I'll put this set up for people <laughs> to listen to, and they can tell me what they think about Good natural idea. versus edited. Um, you listen to any, uh, any cool tracks lately? See how hip and young I sound? <laughs> yes, I I've been listening to some cool tracks lately. Actually, I've been revisiting uh, Modest Mouse, which is one of my favorite bands in the entire world. I really hate Float On, though, so I've just been listening to The Lonesome Crowded West. We all hate Float On. We all hate it. I'm going to Colorado to unload my head. I'm going to New York Episode 7 starts with kind of uh, a flashback. It's been about a month since Shayla died, but we're seeing a bit of her backstory here after her main storyline is concluded. It's kind of reminiscent of this movie called um, Irreversible, which has a, a big fat trigger warning attached to it. I highly recommend not Googling it. But one kind of novel thing that this movie did, um, it's kind of like a rape and revenge movie, but it, it flips the narrative so that the revenge comes first. And it makes you kind of consider uh, the revenge separate from the act that precipitated it. So I think this is kind of similar because they're expanding on her story, but it's already after she's died. 
This is also not a storytelling device the show uses a lot. Um, even Elliot's childhood flashbacks, he sort of sees them superimposed onto his current reality. It's kind of like those are hallucinations almost. Almost. And so this is very different because this is obviously, uh, a tr it's traveling back in time. And it's, awkwardly, it's the first time they meet. They don't know each other's names yet. Yeah. You can tell that it's a while ago because she still has like a really nice hairstyle going on. <laughs> <laughs> um... And I guess she gets into his apartment because she's carrying a little fish in a bowl and the bowl breaks and she just needs help. Yeah, yeah, that's how I that's how I interpreted it at least. It seemed like they maybe broke the fish bowl or something and now they're carrying the fish around. Kind of not a great situation to be in. So that's QWERTY's origin story. Yeah, we get introduced to QWERTY here. Uh, and the other thing that we're reminded of, um, because Sheila notices that Ellie's doing drugs when she walks into the apartment. Yeah, yeah, actually she notices that there's a substance on the table and she just licks up a bit of it and notices that it's morphine and that seems like kind of a bad idea especially with this fentanyl thing going on i probably wouldn't want to do that myself but this kind of um introduces shayla as elliot's supplier right and it's also it brings us back where he says that he would buy from her if she could also get suboxone she does know somebody who has suboxone but she thinks that he's a fucking psychopath and we find out that that's vera so this is kind of the very beginning of um shayla vera elliot's storyline we see Elliot head to an appointment to Krista's, and this looks like a bit of a goodbye meeting because she's telling him to complete a couple of forms, and we learn that this is the end of his court-mandated counseling. Yeah, I guess in the first episode we'd established that he was required to go to these meetings, so we didn't really know that he was mandated to do so by a court. It seems like this has been, um, I think they say it's a year of meetings, and this is uh, the culmination of those. So Elliot said this meeting's kind of... Um, unpack some of the turmoil that's been going on in his life over the past little while. Which he really, he does some internal dialogue, monologue? Yeah, as he often does at, Krista, uh, at Krista's place, he doesn't talk to her that much. He kind of just stares at her and thinks to himself. And in this case, what he's thinking about is uh, Shayla's death and the role that he had in it playing out the way that it did. Because um, he, he kind of blames himself for this. He thinks maybe he should hate himself. And he's also worried that um, now that Shayla's gone, is he going to be able to remember her? Is he going to be able to keep her as part of his life for the, for the future? <laughs> um, Krista also asks him to keep coming. Yeah, which is very important for him. One thing that seems important because of the attention they spend on it, but I can't figure out, is that Elliot's paying a lot of attention to her electrical sockets, and on his way out the door, he tells her that she should clean her sockets. Oh yeah, there's definitely some symbolism there, but I have no idea what it is. I was trying to think about um, other definitions of socket, because the socket is like an outlet in this case, is what they're talking about. But it's also the term that's used in computer science for um, uh, a port that a computer talks over. So if you have two computers talking to each other, it's over a socket. So I was thinking maybe it's something like that, but I really couldn't figure out. Maybe some listener has an idea. Yes, that would help us a lot because we can't for the life of us figure it out. But it's mentioned twice, so I feel like that usually means that there's some yeah. meaning for that. And they have some close-up shots of it, so I think that they're investing a lot in that. So we're just actually going to close up the Elliot storyline. This is not a big episode for Elliot, but when we see him back at his apartment, he is actually uh, archiving Shayla. Yeah, he, he kind of archives Shayla's life in a way similar that he had done to Michael Hansen in an earlier episode. And we see that he's actually done this to a bunch of people. He has a big binder full of CDs, binder full of women, as you might call it. And um, he uses a technique called um, steganography, 
where when you're using cryptography, for example, you take a message and you encode it in a way that it comes out looking like random data. But when you use um, steganography, you encode your data in a message that looks like some other kind of valid message. So he encodes this data inside image files, inside audio files, and things like that. And then he stores them on CDs. So if somebody was to just come across this binder, he would notice that there, there actually is audio on it. And you wouldn't really look for encrypted data in it because you would never have any reason to. It just looks like an audio CD. So the way that he uh, hides this information is very clever. He archives everyone as a different album. So the album he chooses here is The Cure's Disintegration, which wow. is one of my top albums ever. I didn't look at what um, albums he'd been using, but I bet that that is just packed with symbolism for all of the characters that we've seen so far. I think Michael Hansen is Pink Floyd's The Wall or something. Wow. I wonder what that means. We should make a list of the albums. <laughs> um, so he archives her and he decides he has to wipe again. I don't remember why he thought that, but it does kind of confirm our, our suspicion that this is the only thing he uses his microwave for, because he just takes <laughs> all, those, all those flash drives straight to the microwave. And in the process, Flipper eats some of the computer detritus. It must have been like some SD card or something like that, but I couldn't see close enough. But it makes me worried for Flipper. Yeah, I mean, as a dog owner myself, I can hardly get my husky to eat like actual foods, so I can't really imagine having a dog that would just nom up some SD card. Maybe he had peanut butter on it. <laughs> Perfect, some pill pocket. So F Society is a little uh, fractured at this point. We see that Mr. Robot is meeting up with Darlene at a bar, and they're kind of trying to figure out a plan to get everybody back on board. This is another uh, Darlene is loud in public again. <laughs> yeah, she kind of has that tendency, I guess, especially when they're drinking. Um, Mr. Robot, at this point, they have to get the Dark Army back to get this going, and he wants to meet White Rose directly. I think here we get a question about whether White Rose even really exists. Yeah, you know, White Rose, in this episode at least, they kind of remind me of um, Satoshi Nakamoto, which is the name that was given to the creator of Bitcoin, because they anonymously released a white paper and a bunch of software that went on to become Bitcoin. But it, it's never really been established who Satoshi was, or if it was even one person or multiple people. And in this case, it seems kind of similar, because White Rose, like, that, that could actually be the name of a group of hackers, for all we know. It's like Banksy. I was just going to say, it's the Banksy of hacking. <laughs> of course, I, I mean, this seems a bit desperate at this phase, because they also talk about how the backup tapes are already shipping to the new Steel Mountain facilities. So now there's five facilities, and they thought that once that happened, that would be totally impenetrable to them, and the plan would be off. So I'm not sure what's changed their mind and made them think that they can do it again, but... Later in the episode, we'll see that actually Darlene and Mr. Robot split up and go to get the other members of F-Society back on board. Right, we see that Mr. Robot goes to chase down uh, Romero. It seems like he's kind of got a, a high-level pharmaceuticals business going on, kind of like Shayla. And he's kind of got a comfortable life going on for himself right now, so maybe he's not so interested in rejoining F-Society. Uh, Mr. Robot, though... He thinks that Romero is kind of important to this plan, so he goes so far as to threaten him with a gun. I think so. And this goes back to what we were talking about, about how Mr. Robot will abuse an asset to him. So, I mean, Romero must be terrified because Mr. Robot is not the most predictable individual. Absolutely. And I think that um, it's almost self-destructive in a way because... Threatening someone with a gun is not always the best way to get them on your side, you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how much it ensures their compliance. <laughs> Going back to one of my favorite themes here, so while he's got the gun pointed at Romero, 
Mr. Robot says that he gave him his word that he'd finish it. So finish the F Society plan. And he also says Romero knows what Mr. Robot promised he would do if he backed out. Uh, you know, this kind of reminds me of that quote that he says before he pushes Elliot off the board block, where he says that he didn't keep the secret pact he had formed or something like that. Yeah, that is really reminiscent of that. And I think, I mean, one of Mr. Robot's talents here is blurring the line between a promise and a threat. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think this has elements of both. So Darlene has gone to get Trenton back, and they're meeting up at, it looks like a university campus. I'm not exactly sure where they are. Trenton is questioning Darlene's motivation here, where she's asking her, you know, what does she really want? Does she want a true economic revolution, or does she just want momentary anarchy? I'd be okay with either, to be honest. <laughs> I think Darlene would, too. <laughs> um, Trenton, this is good. I like, I like getting glimpses of Trenton's thoughts. I find her really interesting as a character. I think that she's very, like, level-headed compared to some other members of F-Society. I think they should be glad they have her. But, uh... She says she's disgusted because what she sees in Mobley is that his motivations are sort of social, like he wants to hang out, uh, and Romero wants fame. And when Darlene kind of pushes her about why she cares, she says that her parents moved from Iran and they moved here for freedom. And even though they love the United States, they're going to die in debt doing things they never wanted to do. And that's when Darlene sort of pleads with her that they need each other. And I think we can tell by the end of this that the team is really coming back together. So I know your dog is picky, but uh, Flipper has a less discriminating palate. <laughs> so um, Elliot has to take them to the vet because they've eaten some part of his computer. Um, so there they are. Yeah, that's probably like a surprise $600 bill for Elliot. Shout out to pet owners. Um, there are a few interesting uh, moments in the, in the vet scene that I think are worth going over. One of which is that we discover that the dog is microchipped, which is a little bit of foreshadowing. Um, the other quote that comes up here, um, it's, it's, it doesn't really overtly relate to anything that's happened in the series so far, but I think that it's some symbolism that's going to come up as the series progresses. What the vet says to Elliot is that um, the dog won't know what you're doing is good for her. And I think that that's not really just about the dog. I kind of think that it's about other people in Elliot's life as well. Well, it may be about this whole plot, Right, because there's, I mean, I think they know that there's some amount of suffering that's going to come along with what they're doing. Yeah. But that ultimately they think it's the best thing for everyone. So he, because he's the dog's guardian, is entrusted with doing things that are unpleasant but good for her. And in a way, I think they've taken that responsibility for themselves with this bigger plot. So uh, Angela's lawyered up and hit the gym and deleted Facebook. <laughs> And now she wants an off-record meeting with Colby. And that's something his lawyers initially reject it. I think that most lawyers would probably reject that. <laughs> I think if I were a lawyer, I would advise that you reject that. Um, but they say they'll take it to him. And when they do, he partially agrees to it. So they want a promise of immunity for him. And somehow Angela's lawyer is able to secure that. So now he's talking without penalty. Uh, and so he says he'll agree to her, but there can be no lawyers at all, so it'll be Angela and Colby only. And Angela goes to meet him again at his home because he can't leave. Right, because he's under house arrest. So I think that when Angela goes to meet Terry, um, I found some parallels between this confrontation and the confrontation between Elliot and Ron in the opening scene of the first episode. I think that Terry, from the very beginning, 
he has in his mind the idea that Angela wants money, that she has some kind of leverage over him and that she's taking advantage over that to take away what he has already, like his money and his status. But much like with Elliot and Ron earlier, um, Angela doesn't give a shit about money. Uh, that's not really her motivation here. What she's trying to do is figure out his involvement in the Washington Township scandal and kind of make sure that something like that doesn't happen again. I think there's actually a quote that she used like that to describe what she's trying to do. There is. So she says at one point that what she's really trying to do is make sure that men like him don't sit in rooms together again. Yeah. Men like him being um, not so good because he kind of tells her off in a kind of uh, explicit way, isn't that right? Well, in a kind of lousy way because what she is looking for is for him to testify about the board meetings where they made decisions to ignore the environmental reports oh, and right. falsify them. And she says that she will testify that she broke chain of uh, custody or commands or whatever. So there, are, there is a bit of a transaction here going on. Exactly. She's proposing a quid pro quo to him. And so in response to that, he he asks her for oral sex and says that he'll answer her then. <laughs> yeah, that's one way to put it. It's very, it's so point blank. And that's the thing where he's another man, I think, who is so powerful and so wealthy that he feels like he can just speak like that. It really does seem like something Terry would say, though. And I also think that um, the actor, like, they, they did a good job of being such a shithead, I think. I think so, too. I think he's perfect in yeah. that role. Like, he does this scene so well. And she handles this much more gracefully than I might have thought she would, because I think at the beginning she's kind of a flinchy, nervous character. And so she just sort of thinks about it for a second and says that, you know, that's fine, but if he doesn't agree to do this, he's going to become like her, a person that nobody respects. Yeah, that was really interesting to me, because it kind of... Um... It indicated to me that Angela has kind of internalized some of the, maybe, abuses that she's suffered over uh, the first few episodes here. I think so, too, because she's very aware of her, um, her location in the power structure in all aspects of her life. Also, here, you know, in earlier episodes when Elliot talks about finding people's bugs, she does a brilliant job of finding Cole, Colby's bug, and that's that he wants to be someone who is respected. And so... She really tries to pull the plug on that. I really enjoy this Angela rogue agent plotline that's going on. I really do too. So n nothing else happens in that scene, right? That's the conclusion of their conversation? For this episode, yeah, I think. For Angela, we see her again back at, e sorry, back at Allsafe. Um, Gideon knows what she's done and he also thinks that she's a liar in saying that she broke the chain of custody on the file. Yeah, Gideon, he seems very um, shrewd because he kind of noticed that something was wrong with Elliot when he came into work late with all those injuries. Maybe that was a little more overt than Angela's case. But it seems like in both of these instances, he's kind of able to tell right away when people aren't being completely honest with him. I think because Gideon's so nice, it's easy for the characters and also for me as a viewer to underestimate him. Maybe he has like a really high uh, emotional quotient or whatever it's called, EQ. Maybe he does. Maybe that's his, his bug and, and his strength. Uh, Angela says that she knows she'll be fired. Um, Gideon doesn't care about that. He says that if she goes through with this, it's actually going to jeopardize the whole company and everyone, and he kind of gestures at all the people working around them. They're all going to lose their jobs. A lot of time in this episode is dedicated to Tyrell Wellick's storyline. The next time we see him, he's going to um, a party that uh, Price, the CEO of E Corp, is hosting for 
Scott Knowles, who is the new CTO. Um, the last we saw Scott, I think, was when Tyrell was at his dinner party. I think so, too. And so Tyrell's been getting increasingly volatile and erratic, so he's not holding his shit together as well as he normally does. And Joanna kind of knows this. So as they're going into the party, she just turns to him and she says, steady. And this reminds me um, of the, there's a part in Macbeth where Lady Macbeth realizes that Macbeth is flaking out and he's not necessarily going to be ready to go ahead and kill the king. Those two characters really seem like uh, a reference to Macbeth to me. I really think so. Um, and of course, it's la to Lady Macbeth's advantage that the king is killed. So she tells him to be steady, and it reminds me of that screw your courage to the sticking place scene in that play. Um, but you can tell she doesn't entirely trust what he's going to do. Mm -hmm. Tyrell, of course, goes to confront Sharon Knowles right away. Yeah, because... Um, oh, actually, I said that the last time we saw Scott was at the dinner party, but that's not true. They had the meeting earlier where Scott calls him out on the fact that he went into the bathroom with Sharon in a kind of creepy and weird way. Um, so he goes out to Sharon because he confronts her about that fact. He reveals that he knows that Sharon told Scott about that. And he tells her to meet him on the roof, and the implication is that it's for sex. Yeah, yeah. Their, their relationship is very weird because overtly there is nothing but hostility. But I think that as the bathroom scene demonstrated and the fact that he's asking them to hang on on the rooftop, they're, they're fighting overtly, but I think that that's kind of just how they communicate. So there's a bit of a will-they-won't-they they about whether they're going to end up on the roof. But Sharon Knowles heads up there, and Tyrell is there too. Right, and they don't really... Um, they make you wonder about if Sharon is going to meet him on the rooftop, and they also make you wonder about what's going to happen when they do meet. And so when they do meet, she shits on him right away. <laughs> so they, it, It's kind of a mutual shitting on, though, because like I was saying, that's just how they communicate. That is, that's just, they just have a real scrappy... Uh, sort of thing going on. And I don't mean to downplay the seriousness of it because she really digs into him. So she says that she wanted to see if he was gullible and she says she thinks he's just, he's desperate. And the two of them are kissing each other when he actually, um, he takes his hands and he starts to choke her. Yeah, this was actually one of the, it, it was a very disturbing scene. And watching it for the first time, uh, I kind of changed my perspective of the show going forward because so far, the only real instances of violence that we've seen have been kind of um, kind of tame compared to this, whereas in this case, it's very sexualized, I think. At least that's how I interpreted it. And it also kind of gave me some uh, vibes of American Psycho, which is something that Tyrell's character is obviously inspired by. But um, it reminded me a lot of the film Glorious Bastards, where there's a, a similar scene where a woman is choked to death in a kind of similar fashion. But one thing that I thought was interesting about Glorious Bastards was that... Um, the film was directed by Quentin Tarantino and the actress who strangled is Diane Kruger. For uh, the shots that were a close-up of her face where she's being strangled, Quentin Tarantino actually choked her to unconsciousness himself so that he could know that he was directing the scene properly. That's messed up. I have to say, um, this kind of killing, it's upsetting to see it, and I think part of it is. so. Um, it's kind of the opposite of a killing in a story where they're depersonalizing the victim because it's very intimate and it's very close and it just it shows a disregard for their humanity even though that's still there. Absolutely. And I think that they play some music that is kind of trying to play up that perspective because the music starts off very slow and very intimate but as we kind of realize that things are taking a downward turn 
it gets a lot more upbeat. It gets a lot more kind of intense and kind of realize that things aren't going as you would thought they were. I don't think they're even going as Tyrell thought they would. I think he almost seems surprised that he killed her. Yeah, well, it kind of makes you wonder what his exit plan is because he seems very surprised um, in the aftermath of his actions. Like, he doesn't really know what to do. And I think this is further to, we've kind of seen him steadily losing control over his own behavior. And so there's no graceful climb down for this. He's got a dead body on a rooftop. And I guess he just goes back to the party. Yeah, what else can you do? We're coming to the end of this episode now, but one other thing that happens is uh, Darlene meets up with Cisco in a public park. Darlene, we saw, has been um, impersonating Cisco to talk to um, people in the Dark Army because she's trying to ensure that they're going to cooperate when they go forward with this attack later on. He says that she made him look like a shitty foot soldier. I guess what they're establishing is that he's kind of uh, low in the ranks of the Dark Army. I think that's the important point to take away here, that he's likely not White Rose, and he's likely not in any kind of leadership role. Yeah. So to get the cooperation on the F Society hack, he's probably asking for a favor. He also says he doesn't want to see her again. Yeah, this is like the fifth time that they've broken up, I think. <laughs> I never see when they get back together, but they break up all the time. Yeah, it's an on and off again situation, I guess. He also tells her to be careful, and also that he thinks that's the last thing she's going to do. <laughs> yeah, I guess he comes to expect this from her now. But um, he's asking for her to be careful because the meeting is actually on. Uh, they are going to be able to meet with White Rose. So it was just wishful thinking when we told you that Ollie was gone. Yeah, it seems like Ollie does have a few more scenes left. So... Cisco finds him coming out of his gym and he kind of accosts him on the street. Um, Ollie says he's going to call the cops and Cisco's like, uh, what the fuck for? Yeah, I don't think there's any real leverage there. <laughs> but Cisco has a job for him. What's that? Well, we don't actually learn that in this episode. So what we know is that, and you know what, there's no worse person to entrust uh, any kind of job to than Ollie. <laughs> but we know that Ollie's got some role in the events that are to come. I guess that's a cool cliffhanger for episode eight. Elliot is at Krista's uh, for an unscheduled appointment, so she's pretty surprised to see him there. Yeah, I guess that he is continuing his appointments because only the previous one was court-mandated. Maybe he's coming there out of his own volition. So he starts right away just revealing some things to her. Yeah, I think that um, there was one thing in, in the first episode that I think this kind of harkens back to. He says to Krista that um, she knows what it's like to be alone. And at the time, she asks why, because she doesn't really, she hasn't been revealing that fact about herself in their meetings, so she's wondering how he knows this. And because he's hacked her, that's how he knows this, he doesn't really reveal it to her at the time. But now, he kind of opens the floodgates and tells the truth about everything that he's been doing over the past year. Um, he hasn't been taking his medicine, he hacked her, and one quote that I, I really, really enjoyed that I think came out of this scene is that um, Elliot says he wants a way out of loneliness just like you. And I think that's an interesting parallel between the two of them, because earlier in the scene, he, um, he refers to one of her other clients as her doppelganger, and he accuses her of trying to influence that client in certain ways to sort of live the life she wishes she were living. Um, and so the two of them, I think, both try to influence the behavior of others, sometimes in appropriate ways, sometimes in inappropriate ways, or ways that wouldn't be socially sanctioned. Interesting. And also the way they connect to people is sometimes unhealthy. So there's a lot of, um, you know, holding up a mirror to her in her approach to her clients happening in this scene, which is kind of interesting. 
The other line that stood out for me here is Elliot basically says to her that she's not special, he just hacks everyone. But he also says that he's helped a lot of people that way. What do you think he means by that? Well, I think he means, and of course Krista would have no knowledge of it, but I think he means things like the Ron's coffee scene. Oh, or the fact that he, um, he intervened with the Michael Hansen situation, which is actually very close to Krista. Yes, or that he tried to help Shayla, or... And I think, in a very broad sense, he thinks that the F Society plot is also a way to help people through his hacking activity. I find it really interesting that um, even in spite of all these negative consequences that, have that his actions have had, he still thinks that he's a net positive influence, even when he's resulted in Shayla's death. I wonder, you know, that's maybe a question we'll have to circle back to. Is I, I like about this show, there's ambiguity about who is a net positive influence and who is, isn't. And I, I like the complexity of this character where I think he walks the line a lot between, you know, is he a pro-social force or an anti-social force? So this is, there aren't that many episodes in the season like this, but there is no cliffhanger ending here. Just sadness. Pure sadness. Pure sadness until next episode. Thanks for listening to Mr. Rewatch. This podcast was recorded in downtown Toronto. And if you enjoyed listening to today's episode, we'd ask you to consider donating to the Farley Foundation at farleyfoundation.org. That's F-A-R-L-E-Y. They help people access emergency veterinary care. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Erin. And I'm Devlin. Bonsoir. <laughs>